technology and digital health solutions are not really about technology and digital therapeutics. Uh, they're more about streamlining the mechanics of the enterprise so we could eliminate checking boxes and refocus our attention to where it all matters, which is the patient. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. After escaping the revolution in Iran, Sean Kozin found his way to the U.S., harmonizing his passion for patients and data into a career that's led him into startups, the FDA, and most recently, J&J, where he's now global head of data strategy, all while pursuing his love of music. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz, and today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, Lisa. Yes, David. So, today's guest um, uh, seemed to spend a lot of time in college, as we will soon discover, um, more or less playing hooky, and, or if not playing hooky, certainly doing music and going into New York and really availing himself of the music scene. Nice. Now, my, my college memories and, and grad school and med school and all that stuff of music or sort of much, much, much in a way less interesting, basically going down to, still going down to New York, but going to... Um, did uh, you go to like math camp in New York? Is that what you did? Almost. I went, to the, I went to the Met Opera, you know, the Metropolitan Opera with my folks. Um, uh, oh, they, they, we, we had like a regular Sunday, uh, Saturday matinee, and it was fantastic. I, it's just an incredible experience is going to the well, Met When I was in college, I went to tons of concerts. I did the same thing as Sean. I spent every available moment at clubs and at the Greek Theater, which was on campus, wow. you know, which was a major concert venue. And on any given uh, weekend, when I was in college, the Grateful Dead would be in town. And the whole town would be all focused on that, which was pretty hysterical. Um, but so I, you know, and I still, to this day, I still go to tons of live music. I think it's great. I know you do. I know. I knew you. Yeah. I, I, there's so much to that that's, that's so cool. All right. Well, we can't wait to get to it. So, Sean, welcome to the show. <laughs> well, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on Technologics of Learned a lot uh, from listening to your podcast uh, over the years, so I'm uh, very glad to be um, on today. Thank you. I got to ask Sean, what's your favorite band? So my favorite band, that's a very tough question. It's like asking what uh, your favorite color is. Uh, so, you know, I would have to name a band that tends to be very divisive. Uh, it would be Rush. Oh, okay. Okay. Very cool. Right. You either hate Rush or you love them. <laughs> Where are you, Lisa, on that? Um, I kind of like them for nostalgia. Uh, that's when know? it comes to, you know. Right. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get to that in one second. Um, but to start off, an overused catchphrase of our age, Sean, is it's complicated. Yet this doesn't begin, doesn't begin, Sean, to do justice to your early life journey. You were born in Tehran and spent your early childhood there, a middle child, a son sandwiched between two uh, daughters. Um, it sounds like your dad was a political scientist, not the ideal profession to be in uh, following the revolution that ousted the Shah. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like being a kid at the time of such turmoil? Sure. Uh, well, right after the revolution, uh, everything started to uh 
changed very quickly. And, you know, the country, um, as many of you know, uh, went from a secular um, uh, nation to uh, one that uh, essentially ended up becoming a religious uh, dictatorship. And that transition, uh, well, in retrospect, when I think about it, it, it sounds and seems uh, a lot more drastic and dramatic than it was when I was going through it, because at the time, you have to adapt and you just have to do what you need to do. Uh, but uh, you're right. Uh, uh, my dad, having, having been uh, a uh, political scientist and an academic, uh, wasn't uh, looked at favorably by the new regime, especially as they started to in- infiltrate the different factions of society and government. Uh, so, uh, you know, those were, uh, those were very interesting times, tough times, uh, for me and my family. Uh, but, uh, also I think there were a lot of lessons learned along the way about, uh, uh, just what could happen if, uh, um, you know, um, centralized authority runs amok. Uh, and yeah, my dad ended up uh, going to prison and, uh, just because, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the expression of his thoughts uh, were in direct conflict with uh, what the regime uh, intended to do. And in a sense, he was, I mean, fortunate compared to even the fate of some others, and he wound up getting out, and I know everybody left. Um, but prior to that, um, you were pointing out that as a kid, you still, you know, you do what you can to maintain normalcy, even in sort of turbulent times. And in a sense, you're a kid, you, you know, you just sort of adapt. And it sounds like the two things that really helped you were it sounds like your your the the role of music, particularly with your sister, your older sister, and then also the role of just like having a what was it a Commodore sixty four and programming. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. So music definitely had a huge role, um, and also I was always for some reason mathematically inclined. So I start to uh, get into programming, and you're absolutely right. Uh, this goes back to the days of Commodore sixty four, and uh, it was a refuge. Uh, both programming, mathematics, and music um, was definitely a refuge uh, from all the turmoil that that was happening all around us. And uh, when it comes to music, my sister was definitely a huge influence. And uh, she got into music. uh, She's a few years older than me and got into music before I did. And during the revolution, especially for women, uh, it started to become very, very complicated. So for her, music became a form of rebellion. Um, and, um, you know, as part of, uh, it was her way of rebelling against the changes that were occurring. And, uh, that had a huge impact on me. And I basically followed her lead and, uh, started to learn music, uh, originally from her and then, uh, started to take some lessons. But, uh, yeah, so it, it, it had a huge, uh, um, uh, influence on both me and my, growing up. Wow. And it sounds like you had a, like a talk about, like, you know, tumultuous upbringing where you were you were in, um, like you're saying, Iran, and your older sister, uh, who, who taught you music, ultimately escaped to Belgium. You went to, after your, or sometime, I guess, during your first year of high school, you went to Turkey for a couple of years. And then um, where you, you know, after a few years after that, everyone sort of recongregated um uh, in the United States, uh, uh, in uh, in the D.C. area, where um, uh, it sounds like you you you, re- you applied for and received asylum, is that correct? Yes. So we uh, 
so I, I went to Turkey, as you said, my sister was in Belgium. And then when my parents could uh, join us uh, and, and, um, and my sister went from Belgium to the U.S. And when my parents joined me in Turkey, we uh, came to the United States as political refugees. And um, we, we got political asylum. Wow. So then you went to college at the University of Maryland. Well, first of all, you, you, you completed high school in the U.S., um, uh, which sounds like it must have been quite the adjustment. Um, uh, you went to college at the University of Maryland where you studied uh, neurobio and music theory, which actually strikes me as very compatible, to be honest with you. It doesn't seem that, that weird, um, uh, even though they're, they're kind of at first blush, perhaps very different. And at the same time, you, you also discovered lab work, but you still found a lot of time for music on the side, often traveling to uh, New York City. What kind of music were you into at the time, and what were you actually doing in all that? Sure. Well, um, um, I was classically trained, uh, but then when I was in high school and, and uh, college, uh, just like everyone else, I started to get into rock music and uh, had a rock band, but when I started to play, let's say, semi-professionally, uh, the idea was to combine classical jazz and rock music into um, uh, a form of uh, fusion uh, type of arrangement that was more palatable to the ear. You know, I started to get into a tonal music and Schoenberg, and especially Arnold Schoenberg had a huge influence, and I always thought like what Schoenberg did for uh, music uh, was very similar to what Einstein did uh, for physics, where he uh, completely went beyond Newtonian laws of physics, and Schoenberg uh, went completely beyond uh, sort of the traditional ways of thinking about uh, uh, music theory, like the whole atonal system where all the notes are created equally, there's no central gravity. So the idea that we had was to combine it all and, and make it more palatable uh, to a larger audience. Uh, and start to incorporate even drum and bass and, and dance elements that people can actually dance to. So that was uh, that was the idea. So it was you could, you could sounds like <laughs> like the electronic music type of thing that you'd find today. Is it was it did it succeed? Did, were you successful in getting that popularized? Well, yeah. It, it uh, you know there were many offshoots uh, at the time from that type of thinking. Uh, we uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that we, uh, if you if I listen back to some of the music we wrote, it sounds electronica uh, in a way, uh, but it was all done live. So the idea was to bring those organic sounds into uh, electronica music um, and start to incorporate uh, these elements from classical and jazz. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think you know a, a, an analogy is what happened in Germany uh, after uh, the Second War with this whole crop rock movement. Uh, well, where they started to uh, incorporate, you know, the same types of uh, jazz and classical mm-hmm. uh, math rock, quote unquote, elements uh, into something that, you know, when you uh, listen to that music, the music from that era, it sounds very electronic, but it was all done organically with live instruments. Right. Uh, so, it, but you know, we, so what was your band's name? What was your band's name? We went through uh, a lot of different names. So the original one was called Azure. And uh, there were a couple of other names along the way, and the most recent one, uh, Welkins, uh, W-E-L dot K-I-N-S. And what is the significance of the name? What does Welkins mean? Well, uh, Welkin, uh, basically, uh, it's, it's a long story, <laughs> so, but uh, it just uh, had a nice tone to it, and the website was available. <laughs> 
That sounds right. So just to to go from the um, elegance of music to the uh, sublimity sublimity of um, it's easy for you to say. Apparently not um, uh, science. Um, it sounds like at the same time you were in um, when you were finishing college, you applied for a pre doc fellowship at the NCI. Um, which seems like it was a really exceptional experience. It gives you a chance to work on TGF Beta with two extraordinary mentors, uh, Anita Roberts, who subsequently and tragically died of gastric cancer in 2006 at the age of 64, and Lalage Wakefield. What's, what struck you in particular about them? What, why did they have such an impact on you, would you say? Yeah, I was uh, very fortunate to be part of that laboratory. And at the time, there was a lot of activity around TGF Beta, and Anita Roberts had made pioneering discoveries about TGF-beta uh, and the signaling pathway and uh, thinking about the potential therapeutic uses of uh, uh, TGF-beta. And uh, it, 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 being there in that environment was very nurturing. You know, they were very uh, humble and uh, really spent uh, both Anita and Lodigy, who I'm still in touch with to this day, uh, really, I think the foundation of how I looked at basic science research and laboratory research uh, was built there. And their humility and uh, their curiosity uh, was very, very inspiring. And and just thinking back about those days, you know, I still uh, carry the lessons learned with me. And unfortunately, as you said, Anita Roberts um, ended up getting gastric cancer um, and even the way she handled that was beautiful, and she started to write about her experience. She blogged about it, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and just watching her go through that experience really validated uh, what a what an amazing and and uh, a special person she was, both as a scientist but as a human being. And I think uh, the two typically go hand in hand. <laughs> Mm. Wow. So um, in the second year of this research, I know you also found the time to complete an MBH at George Washington in biostats and uh, and analytics. Now, what I'm kind of really interested in is you then went to medical school at the University of Maryland, and it sounds like a shared experience that you and I had was that we were both surprised by med school and um, about what we learned about the practice of medicine in particular. It sounds like we, we both love practicing medicine, but we also each found it expected it to somehow be more scientific uh, than it was. Could you tell us what, what you meant, but what you, what, what you mean by this? Sure. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it was a surprise. And um, especially concerning the experience I had before med school. And, and to me, I was basically prepping the field for, for med school with basic science research, um, learning as much about um, uh, how to do sophisticated advanced analytics. Uh, but when I went to med school, as you mentioned, it was a surprise that I uh, found it not as quantitative as I thought it would be. Um, and even the first week uh, during the white coat ceremony, a uh, very special, memorable uh, ceremony where you, know, you wear a white coat and then you take the Hippocratic Oath. Um, uh, but that whole milieu felt more like uh, being part of... Um, I don't want to say cult, <laughs> you know, but uh, 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 a, a group uh, that uh, uh, thinks about what they do in terms of history and tradition rather than quantitative thinking. Um, and that was definitely a surprise. Obviously, um, you know, there 
are legitimate reasons for that, you know, why medicine has evolved that way, because traditionally we uh, could only measure uh, very few things, and we have to rely on clinical judgment and intuition. Um, but uh, even with things that we could measure, like ECGs and EEGs, waveforms, uh, I mean, we were printing them out you know, on a piece of paper and uh, exposing them to human visual inspection and having to memorize all these waveforms on a piece of paper. So that piece of it, for, for example, from early on was a little strange to me. You know, why even in cases where we have digital assets like uh, ECG waveforms, are we, are we not applying more quantitative methods uh, to analyze the information? So it was definitely a surprise, and I, I know we've talked about that in the past, and I guess to both of us, uh, um, that uh, uh, wasn't how we thought med school uh, was going to be like. I think it's fascinating that uh, that surprised you in a negative way, because considering that your primary or other passion was music, which is definitely an art, not a science, in a same in a similar way, it, you use you know memory to reproduce sound, not you know it's not precise, and it can be riffed and changed and um, reinterpreted by different musicians, the same song and the like. Did it make did that musical background make it more comfortable for you, or did it make it more or did it did it confuse you? I mean, did you think those things should be kept separate, or that, that there was a benefit to having that way that mode of thinking as well? Sure, I, I wouldn't say uh, it 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 was a negative reaction that I had. I was just surprised uh, because I thought it would be more scientific and more quantitative. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, and uh, and and you're right. And I I very quickly began to understand what they mean by the art of medicine. <laughs> um, but there, there were certain things that uh, were artisanal, which was the difference between, you know, the art of medicine and the artisanal nature of doing things. Mm-hmm. So artisanal part probably bothered me the most. And that was the part, that was the component that was in clash with my quantitative mathematical side for a number of years. However, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, but again, this was not necessarily a negative reaction. It, it was just something that was there. Uh, and it became a curiosity for me uh, in terms of, well, how can you use technology and quantitative methods? I feel like I'm listening to you and saying preach because, I mean, I actually loved, I, I wouldn't want medicine to be more, quote, technocratic. I lo- I've written about it like, you know, in, 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 with great passion, you know, the wonderful, you know, non-technological, the, you know, the actually, you know, connecting with other people, which I continue to believe is at the core of medicine. But I think what, what you're describing is, that is a part of medicine, but there's also a part where there are things that are done where you're like saying, well, geez, just like some basic stuff that seems to be – we could be able to do a lot better. And I think that's why when people describe medicine, um, it's sort of the defining example of what's called fractionated expertise, where there's, which means there are some parts where – um, the, it's totally misinformed by cognitive biases and where we, people do think they're much smarter than they are and all the stuff that Kahneman talks about. But then there are other parts that really are incredible areas of expertise and intuition, the kind of stuff that Klein talks about, where you really – all the experience and, and having a sense of what's going on really, really do come into play. And I think that both of them coexisting is um, – is, is 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 so interesting. Yep. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Just to kind of uh, you know, since we're on the topic, just uh, to clarify, I completely believe, even to this day, uh, that the number one factor determining how health outcomes is how strong the therapeutic relationship with the physician is, and that has always been the case. Totally agree with you on that. Well, that and a good drug, but yeah. So I've always believed in in that uh, 
physician-patient uh, therapeutic bond. And in fact, you know, one of the uses of technology to me is to uh, take care of all the mechanics and get them out of the way so physicians and patients can connect in a way to go back to how it used to be more holistic. Uh, so, uh, but that that is uh, is different than, for example, uh, why we haven't been able to um, quantify. He's just glaring at me. I'm Le- totally, I'm Le- like, so not with you guys on the single greatest predictor of health outcome being that doctor-patient relationship because, A, it assumes the doctor's good at what he does and not, or she, and that uh, 50% of all people are worse than average. So we all know there are some pretty bad doctors out there. So no matter how good the relationship is, uh, that is not going to result in a good health outcome. And I actually think that when the the patient is, they may have a great relationship with the physician, but if they're disengaged from helping in the decision-making or their social support system is, is broken down, no matter how good that relationship is, they are not going to have a good health outcome. It just seems to be such a bigger issue than that one thing. That's a great point. Obviously, it's a very complicated topic. Um, and um, um, But, you know, overall, um, in aggregate, a strong therapeutic bond has many advantages, obviously, there's access to care when you need it. I'd agree with that. And a good physician uh, thinks about the patient in a holistic way. And it's not, uh, it's, it's a partnership more than, you know, oh, I'm Dr. Know-it-all. And it's all about patient empowerment and, and taking yeah. into consideration all the psychosocial issues, environmental issues that impact uh, the patient's um, life and, and how they manage, are able to manage their own health. So I think a good relationship should ideally lead to patient empowerment, and it should incorporate uh, factors beyond just uh, uh, the data that we collect in the office, like laboratory and, and vital science and so forth. Well, so with, uh, with those stipulations, I will agree that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it may have been an exaggeration to say that the, that the therapy is the single most important point, but I, I guess I'm glad maybe- to have you back. It, <laughs> it did feel like important to, uh, to I, I feel like that gets underemphasized uh, by some lately. Um, so, it, you know, it, for all of these reasons, you, you actually, st- after you finished um, your, your, your medical training, um, you initially went into private practice with the interest of bringing more quantitation into medicine, trying to build bring more digital tools and tech to the doctor's office. And this was in a 2006-07 time frame, which um, led to a startup experience where you started, as I understand it, like a tech-enabled medical services company. Could you tell us about your experience there? Sure. Um, yeah, that was uh, essentially an attempt to uh, just use uh, technology and advanced quantitative methods, originally just to be able to uh, monitor our patients and, and take care of uh, uh, our patients and streamline our workflows. And before we knew it, you know, we had venture funds and it ended up being a company. And uh, it was a very, very interesting experience. It was an eye-opening experience because it really showed me that, well, uh, in healthcare delivery, uh, in order to really start to um, make it more patient-centered, more consumer-centric, um, you have to really start to address fundamental workflows and and uh, address the flow of healthcare dollars. And it's not just about technology and analytics, although that is at the heart of it, at, at the core of it, but in order to um, create that substrate, there are a lot of other factors that have to be addressed. So originally, we started on that path, uh, and then we started to uh, build brick-and-mortar practices linked to a technology that we developed 
Um, and uh, eventually, we started to split the real estate assets from the technology piece because a lot of the early investors were uh, uh, technology investors, and they didn't really know much about healthcare delivery. What, what was the name of the company? Hello Health. Oh, okay. And so you, ha- so that's interesting. Yes, there was definitely, I think, a time not that long ago when investors were so convinced, healthcare investors in particular even not just tech, that, you know, everything had to be software as a service and anything that was actually service or in person was negative and had lower margin and not scalable, blah, blah, blah. And it seems to me like we've come full circle back to, wait a minute, we actually might need some humans in healthcare and we might occasionally actually need to see somebody in person. Do you think it's changing or, or do you think it's uh, still the same as when you were you were dealing with that? I think it's changed a lot. You know, one of the, for example, we were working with uh, a lot of telemedicine and biosensor uh, tools uh, to uh, essentially um, follow the patients and and create new avenues of communication and create new access points. Uh, and and the idea actually was to strengthen the the therapeutic bond using technology to make sure that that the patient gets the care that they need when uh, uh, they need it. And they don't always have to go to the doctor's office. They could do it remotely. Um, and at the time, obviously, telemedicine was something that um, there was no billing code for it, let's say. Um, and and there was a lot of skepticism about telemedicine and biosensors. Obviously, we've come a long way. And in fact, you know, when the, the technology was commercialized, some of those uh, telemedicine uh, tools uh, were um, only turned on, um, you know, if, for example, the, the technology was deployed um, at a uh, self-insured entity where they had uh, control over their entire operations, or if it was self-pay, if the patients were paying out of pocket for, pockets, uh, for, these, for those features, but not in an integrated fashion. It's still like that in many cases. It's still like that in many cases. There's still very spotty reimbursement. Yeah, so I think we've come a long way. Yeah, but, yeah. And I think things are definitely different now. So we have a little bit of glass half empty, glass half full. Um, so just I know we have you know, not that much time left. Um, I know that you were seduced back to Washington in the NCI to pursue a fellowship in oncology, driven drawn by the promise uh, that you could pursue sophisticated analytics. And I know you were recruited by a compelling mentor, Tito Photo, um, and also attracted by the intellectual activity that was occurring in town, particularly the work of... Um, uh, Todd Park and uh, Anish Chopra. But instead of dwelling on that, what I want to talk about is two other, br- briefly talk about two other experiences. First, if you could briefly, and I know it's so much work to encapsulate, uh, talk to us about the work that you did at the FDA uh, with an initiative called Informed, which I know you describe as an incubator for driving innovations in agile technology, digital health, and data science to advance public health. If you could describe to us, maybe we'll combine it, what that Informed is, and then what, how that, um, well, let, let's talk about that first, and then we'll talk briefly about what you're aspiring to do at J&J. Sure. Uh, so Informed was, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to launch it and, and help it scale. Uh, so essentially what Informed was, and, and you're right, this was around the time where um, there were a couple of new positions created in federal government. Uh, one was the first CTO of the United States, and Anish Chopra stepped into that role. And then the other one was the first CTO of HHS, and that was Todd Park. And uh, the idea at the time was, well, let's bring entrepreneurship and disruptive thinking to government and start to address critical 
deficits that exist. So um, you know, a lot of interesting things happened at the time. The U.S. digital services were started a number of other uh, things, and a lot of folks did come from, let's say, the quote-unquote uh, Silicon Valley circles uh, into federal government. And I was essentially part of that wave. And when I entered uh, federal government, my pitch to um, HHS was, well, we're at an inflection point right now in biomedicine, just like we were at an inflection point in the 40s uh, during the war, uh, where uh, the Department of Energy, Department of Defense helped launch the national labs as a public-private collaboration sandbox. And the first project was the Manhattan Project. It changed the course of history. So HHS needs a national labs, and let me help launch it. So that was the original idea to create a public-private collaboration sandbox and incubator for de-risking these emerging solutions and AI and advanced analytics. So I was fortunate enough to get those um, uh, special authorities to launch and form at the FDA. And the reason the FDA was uh, desirable is because, well, it, it regulates a quarter of the U.S. economy. And when it comes to biomedicine, what the FDA says and does is so critical in shaping the orientation of the biomedical enterprise, not just in the United States, but globally. Uh, so what we did, uh, we brought in entrepreneurs and residents and started to launch a series of research collaborations with startups, academ- academia, um, and, um, and other uh, you know, large uh, tech companies uh, to start to address uh, very critical problems uh, in biomedical workflows. And, and, you know, what's, what's not clear to a lot of innovators in the technology community is how our workflows are designed. Uh, because, you know, for example, in, in, everyone knows how the financial system works, how those transactions uh, occur. So fintech had an easy time to kind of ease itself into those workflows and start to address them. Same thing with retail, same thing with uh, aviation or social media. You know, these are open boxes, but biomedicine and healthcare, for the most part, are black boxes, and it gets very wonky. So the idea was to break open the black box and bring in innovators and nurture them, in fact, uh, to address critical problems that are important to uh, public health priorities. And what was the best outcome? What what thing was nurtured there that had the most impact? Well, I think uh, there were several themes that we addressed very successfully. One was around real-world evidence. You know, at the time... You know, the whole concept of real-world evidence was really foreign to a lot of people. And this was before the 21st Century Theorist Act. And we started to launch a series of uh, projects and research collaborations. One of the better-known ones is um, uh, the one we launched with Flatiron. But we had other uh, companies as part of research collaboration portfolio, uh, Coda, SciApps, and you know, a lot of uh, startups that were thinking about this domain. And that really started to um, shape uh, um, everyone's thinking, I think, around these themes. And then the 21st Century Heroes Act happened, which uh, really uh, opened up the, um, carved a new path forward for real-world evidence. So that's, that's one of those major themes. The other one was we accidentally started to address some operational deficiencies, even though we didn't want to think about uh, FDA uh, uh, operational issues. But... Uh, we needed data, and we basically created a digital framework for uh, evaluating uh, pre-market safety information. 
um, essentially uh, safety information that has to be reported by law to the FDA. We realized it was being faxed to the FDA or it was coming as PDF files via this uh, FTP system. And that's, in fact, like one of the main reasons the FDA was created. Uh, it wasn't until 1962, whereas we know FDA got the efficacy mandate. So it was all designed around safety and still designed around safety. So that... Uh, uh, digital framework, which uh, we piloted in 2017 with Merck, AstraZeneca, Novartis, and Genentech. We published it in Nature Reviews. Uh, and then we took, uh, with the help of um, Scott Godlieb and others, uh, Dr. Woodcock at the FDA, uh, we helped um, uh, implement it. Uh, and uh, some of the uh, sort of basic math that we've done just for the FDA at full implementation in about a year or so, uh, it will translate into 500 full-time equivalent hours of savings a month. It's, it's quite fascinating. And for the first time, there'll be safety signal detection. They were there, we realized there was no safety signal detection in the pre-market set because you, know, you can't do safety signal detection on paper and PDF files. Um, and so obviously there are um, advantages to be gained there exponentially. Uh, so there was a press release, in fact, uh, that the FDA issued uh, a couple of weeks before I left talking about this, and, you know, it's going to be voluntary for our companies to do this um, um, for the next year or two, and then it will be mandatory uh, that uh, they need to digitally submit the data. Uh, so I think that was that's another example I would use. Uh, and there were many other examples. You know, I was fortunate enough that, you know, amazingly smart people at the FDA, uh, and we were able to connect with a lot of talent across the agency in a horizontal fashion. And data science by nature is horizontal. And that's where the magic happens. So after this really positive experience and, you know, at least putting in the framework, like you're saying, to, um, for, for, for significant impact, um, you, um, uh, at late 2019, left the FDA to join J&J as a head of the data science strategy. I know we only have a few minutes left, um, but, um, you know, as you probably know I'm a huge fan of J&J's head of research, Matai Mammon, a former MD-PhD classmate, and an uncommonly smart and decent person. I'm curious to understand what drew you to this opportunity and what you see as the high-level uh, goals, challenges, and opportunities there. Sure. Um, so I, I think, uh, uh, as uh, we all know, um, you know there are, there's a lot of value embedded in data science and technology uh, to improve uh, clinical evidence generation and the full spectrum of of development from discovery all the way to late phase and post market, and not just real world data, you know, themes around AI and and uh, other um, data science themes that can really start to fundamentally reshape how we do clinical research, make it more patient centric, collect endpoints that are more patient centered, and um, obviously, um, as you mentioned. Um, J&J is a wonderful company. Folks like Matai, who's the head of R&D, um, you know, has, uh, they have a great uh, vision on, on what this future should look like. And it's a very pragmatic vision as opposed to aspirational and, and uh, you know, AI is going to change the world, which it may. However, uh, we have to be pragmatic and start to embed. So what do you mean by pragmatic? How, 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 what, what, is, what does that mean um, operationally? Right. So operationally, it means uh, start to integrate these themes uh, where the rubber meets the road as part of development. And that's what really um, excited me about J&J and Janssen and, and um, uh, talking to Matai um, and, and the fact that uh, this is a strategy 
which uh, we are incorporating uh, where the rubber meets the road on the ground, you know, writing things into protocols and help uh, working with the therapeutic area leads uh, to identify their um, questions um, that we can help them address uh, with uh, data science tools and advanced analytical tools. So let me, uh, so before we have a, there's like a one final question, but before I get to that, I have a, another J and J, or really a pharma question. I think one of the real issues that I, it strikes me in the, in this in the area is the question of digital exceptionalism, and that whether digital and data is this distinct area that should be called out distinctly, have distinct leadership, have a distinct center, which is how many companies are approaching it. But I'm not sure. I mean, you don't have like the chief of PCR. So do you you need a chief of digital and data or that sort of thing? Um, Or is that really, you know, do you need to think about it in it? Is that really sort of the wrong mindset? And like the, I've heard folks with great technological expertise and pharma expertise you know, argue that instead you really need to have more of a of, of sort of an integrated view where what you're describing should be just part of how science is done. Where, where do you come down in the digital exceptionalism um, discussion? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question, David. And, and uh, I think um, it should be just how we do things. Digital tools and, and AI, they're just nothing but tools. Uh, and and that's what I was trying to say in terms of um, what excited me about Jane J and Jansen was that philosophy, that orientation, that these are tools that we can now use. Um, and there's no exceptionalism per se, but you know what we need to think about is how to incorporate these tools at the right spots in development. And you know what I when I think about this, I I will say that you know we've been here before. You know, medicine and engineering used to be intertwined back in the 1800s. That's how we got. Uh, the EKG and uh, x-rays. Just imagine if I told you today that, you know, I have a biosensor that measures uh, the, electro- act- the electrical activity of your heart. I'm going to stick leads on your chest, and then I'm going to make life and death diagnoses, like myocardial infarction. But that's the ECG. You would probably say that I'm crazy, and you probably want to have uh, guidance documents from regulatory authorities and, and who knows what else. However, you know, we start to incorporate these tools, the ECG, we had some quick wins back then. You know, we had the EEG and then we had the, uh, the X-ray uh, uh, sort of technologies. And it happened very quickly. And the reason I think that happened was because medicine, engineering, data science in the late 1800s were actually intertwined and integrated. And we're just looking at these um, as options, uh, technological innovations as tools and trying to think about how to best incorporate them on the ground. And I think... Uh, that's where we're at right now at this uh, so-called inflection point. Uh, we're, in a way, we're going back to the future and, and starting to uh, go back to that spirit of uh, experimentation that existed in medicine, uh, where data science and engineering were intertwined. So we've been here before, um, and it's just a matter of starting to address and reshape some of the fundamentals as the journey continues. So what what thing, what one change, or maybe there's more than one, has to happen then for, for digital therapeutics to really thrive? Because I think the theory has been that, you know, you can create digital therapeutics, they can be efficacious, they can be shown through clinical trial to be good. And then the only, you know, sort of best way to distribute them is through the pharmaceutical companies. And yet, the pharmaceutical companies seem to be rejecting that, you know, that 
theory, <laughs> you know, one by one, like the deals that have been struck between digital therapeutics companies and pharma companies have been kind of falling apart one after the other. Do you do you think it's just a matter of time and it comes comes back around or is there something fundamental here? So that's a great question. It's a very nuanced question. And just in broad strokes, I think what uh, needs to happen, which is already happening, is that uh, there should be more biopharma and uh tech collaborations, not as customer-vendor relationships, but as true collaborators who are doing research and science together. And I think that's a prerequisite. Um, and another component to that is that, uh, you know, we have to look at uh, technology and data science, again, as tools, not as, uh, you know, exceptional, aspirational um, innovations that, uh, you know, are completely different than how we do things today. That's number two. Number three, mm. we really have to uh, start to quantify and benchmark how we're do, doing things today. Uh, and then we'll realize the volatility that exists in, in, in standard, for example, uh, ways of doing clinical trials, standard ways of measuring endpoints. There's a lot of volatility. Uh, the thing is that we accept it because that's how we've always done things. So if we start to quantify and benchmark the status quo, we'll realize uh, it becomes, I think, a lot more clear that there's a lot of room for improvement. And the artisanal nature of things, I think, become more clear so people have more, uh, an, more of an appetite uh, to bring these digital tools and technologies into workflows. I think that's very interesting. How there's just so much variability that we may not even appreciate at the moment uh, that, that you're going to hopefully surface uh, here. Um, okay, last super short question. Do you still find time for music? I do. You know, I, I practice a lot. Uh, my audience has uh, shrunk over the years. The guitar, right? Yes, uh, the classical guitar. You know, that's the easiest thing to do right now. I do compose and I get together with uh, friends, musicians who are a lot better than me, and we record from time to time. But for the most part, you know, my audience has shrunk, and I play the guitar, and I have a one-person <laughs> audience, my wife. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just, uh, you've, you've gone from uh, breadth to depth and uh, improved the quality of your audience, I imagine. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, thank you. It was such an interesting discussion. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your such broad, uh, your wide range of perspectives uh, yeah. with us. And good luck with everything in your new role. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to learn about what you're doing. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that was pretty interesting. It's fascinating, yeah. He's had a very varied career, and, and uh, it's it's interesting to think about some of that that confluence of art and science. I mean, we have so many guests that are musicians or artists or, you know, have that such a developed side of their brain, and yet they're, you know, computer scientists or physicians or uh, other, you know, other aspects of, of medicine and science, and it's so... It's so interesting how those things go together. Well, so and what often. I loved about what he brought up is that it's it's he's someone who embraces you know quantitation and technology, but isn't a technocrat at all. I mean, he has you know mm. a strong it sounds like humanistic sense of patience mm. and authentic understanding and visceral belief in in you know in understanding that aspect of medicine. And I think he. It, it, you know, it's sort of challenging to maintain these two different views of medicine in your one in, at the same time. And I think that's all of our challenges yeah. of understanding the parts that are that fundamentally are so meaningful about medicine, you know, the, the, the humanistic connection, you know, mm -hmm. whether through the therapeutic relationship or something else, Lisa. But also, <laughs> um, but at the same time, the 
all the crap that happens, it really should be fixed. Mm-hmm. And so trying to kind of um, navigate both of those things in parallel is a, is a real challenge. Anyway, please remember to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Soonan at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Scenic Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Take care. Hasta la vista.